Welcome to the second episode of my conversation with Becky Fleckner about Viola Spolin's book, Improvisation for the Theater. In this episode, Becky shares a few more of her stories from her time as a teacher. We also talk about how feasible it is to follow the plans that Viola Spolin lays out in her book for a class, the application of this material in a rehearsal room, and I end up going on another rant about how much Jared Leto sucks. There are some people mentioned in this episode that you might want to check out in case you're unfamiliar with them. I'll also post some links in the description. The first one we mention is Keith Johnstone. He's a British and Canadian educator, playwright, actor, and theater director, and an influential figure of improvisational theater. He wrote a book of improvisation called Impro. We also mention Augusto Boal, a Brazilian theater practitioner, drama theorist, and political activist who was the founder of Theater of the Oppressed. We also mentioned Sanford Meisner, actor and theater educator. Meisner was part of the group theater and became part of the actor's studio. He developed an acting system that has become known as the Meisner Technique. I suggest you do your research on this one. I've seen this technique taught, and most of the time it's done terribly. Jerzy Grotowski is another person we talk about. He was a Polish theater artist and director whose research and experimentation in theater had great influence in Europe and in North America. We also mention Uta Hagen, Tony Award-winning actor and theater practitioner. Uta Hagen's work has had a great impact on Western theater, especially in academic institutions. Many students in college are required to read Respect for Acting at some point and many of her exercises and techniques are used in the classroom. I hope this information is helpful for you as you listen to this episode. Thank you for joining the conversation. And now, back to Viola Spolin's Improvisation for the Theater, featuring Becky Fleckner. else that I was going to say uh, you had brought up because she talks about how you need to learn the rules right like you need to know the rules of the game in order for it to be fun and and all the things that is like I it's so I I rereading this I was like oh yeah I've taken a lot of my own teaching from this book Uh, because one of the main things that I say to my students every time we start to play a game is because you always get those kids who want to like tweak the system right they want to like find the loophole they want to they want to they want to run off the into no man's land on the stage where we told you you couldn't go and like Mm -hmm. whatever and I always tell them I'm like listen here we go you're going to learn the rules and we're going to play the game with the rules and then you're going to figure out how you can break them but you don't know how to break them yet if you can't learn them so like you need to know the foundation, right? Which is her ideology of like, you have to know the foundation in order for it to be fun. If it's just a free for all, it's not fun. We do need to know some rules. And then you can go ahead and break them. And probably when you break them, it's gonna be great. But like, we have to, we have to build the foundation first before you can build the rest of the house. Which is something that, you know, when people point to figures throughout history who are uh, artistic geniuses, this person was a genius, this person was a genius. Lots of times that genius comes from them just breaking rules that were there. This person goes, oh, I know these rules. I know these rules backwards and forwards. And I'm going to break these rules. Um, Mm -hmm. Since we were talking about them, Shakespeare is an example of that. uh, Somebody who broke the, who who bent the rules of what a play was supposed to be in terms of how it was written 
uh, it, it, with with verse and things like that. And then he bent the rules and then he just started breaking them because he was older and he was just like, I'm rich. I don't care anymore. Um, yeah. But but that that is where that's a great point of you have to learn the rules if you want to end up breaking them. And that actually brings up another point, because I know as a teacher, something that um, and again, this is Spolin, if I'm remembering correctly, she essentially is like talking about the freedom that the environment in these workshops gives to students. There's a lot of freedom for them to explore their uh, their intuition, uh, what they what they feel. Um, and we or teachers, leaders who it's not abdicating their responsibility, but it, I think from a student standpoint, it could look like the teachers like whatever. But there's this idea that this free atmosphere will create chaos and that there will be no ability to control the students and get them to do what we need them to do. Uh, could be a fear out there. I mean, I, I, I was thinking about it a little bit and then she ended up addressing it in the book. But she does talk about discipline and not discipline in terms of you're in trouble now or but more of how do you I, to me, it seemed like positively steer the students so that what they're doing is beneficial for them, mm. so that it is helping unlock their intuition. And that's not just rowdy students or ones that are trying to go into no man's land or who are trying to win, the students who are trying to win the game. It's like the point's not really to win the game. You know, that's not what we're doing right here. Um, but even small things, she tells a story about... Um, a student who is on stage in a game and the student just ends up watching. So the student is not participating very much and just watching or looking out at the audience to see like, what am I doing right? And mm -hmm. Spolin's response to that is, hey, if you want to watch, that's totally fine. But that makes you an audience member and that means you come out here. Mm -hmm. So it's fine if you want to watch, you can come out here and watch. But that's there's the, the place for, for, for the audience is here. Place for the players is up there. And that is a, I think, a really important thing. I'm not saying it's easy. It's, it would be, it's, it, she puts a lot of pressure on teachers and directors to really know their stuff, like to know their shit and to be self-aware of what, we're communicating to the students. Yeah. Um, but that, that sort of discipline technique is important for her to write about in this book so that teachers know that it's not like, oh, yeah, this is just a free-for-all. Like, we're just a bunch of granola-eating theater people who just let our students do whatever. Spolin's like, no, we like I make them do what they need to do, but I do it so that I'm not, like, crushing them in a right. way. Right. Well, I think it's, in, and again, I don't really know if this is because of reading her, her work and, and trying to practice her theories, um, or if it's just my Emerson teaching. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, I mean, we, number one in education, right, is we're positive reinforcement. So what she's really doing in that moment is saying, you're making a, a choice, and that choice is neither good nor bad. But if you're making that choice, then you have to come over here and do this thing over here. Uh, you can't, because you're, you're breaking the rules of what's going on up here, right? Sure. So, so that choice is great. It is what it is. 
you have to do these things. And as, and, and it's just saying as a teacher and as a director and as, you know, everything you just said, you have to have the onus of being able to say, I'm not in here to force you to do something. Mm -hmm. I'm here to guide you in the choices that you were making. Mm -hmm. And if those choices are against the thing that you are seeing now from an outside perspective, of course, that looks like it's like a free for all moment. And, and anyone who's walking into your, your workshop, if they're not already there as an audience member might be like, Oh, this is organized chaos, but it's, it's absolutely not. We, and especially on a younger level, right? For the six and eight year olds, we are allowing this moment uh, of, of this learning moment, right? For them to self-discover uh, that choices are a good thing, uh, that no matter what the choice is, right? A choice is a choice and that's a good thing as long as you're following the rules. So on like a human level, right? If you're following the rules of society and you're making a choice, that choice is neither bad or good, you're not your the rules are that you can't harm anyone right you know what i mean like i can see right. where existentialists might be like oh but we can do all this stuff over here but that's not you know uh, that's that's she clearly says there needs to be rules right um and and so we're just in there to celebrate that those choices are being made so that as they grow up and as they do more theater and as they learn more more of these games or they play more of these games uh, that they that that is already now that is their intuition that making a choice is in their intuition. So we scaffold on the next year that they are just going to intuitively make a choice and they're going to learn that whatever they do is a choice, right? So there we go. Now we can move on to the next thing and then we can, you know, intuitively, you know, whatever we play the game where she puts an object in front of you and you feel it with your hands, right? Then yes. like intuitively, you know what soap feels like next. And it's just, it's a scaffolding method. That is, right. it's an, that's an education term, you know, to scaffold and when you lesson plan and when you, do curriculums and units or whatever, you want to make sure that each lesson plan bleeds into the next so that the kids are learning things on top of each other instead of, you know, like having this sporadic, just, and now we learn about this today, and now we learn about this today, and now we, like, everything's supposed to meld together to create whole. Right, and I and I think she does this very well throughout the, the sequence of her games to build upon the thing that came before, and as, in regards to the organized the thought of something being organized chaos the it's not just the rules of the game but it's also the group agreement which they agree on the rules and the reactions of students you were talking about the choice that we make neither good nor bad it's a choice but what she's trying to it seems to me eventually get to is choices made in response to the stage reality into what has been built on the stage and those boundaries that are built on the stage are part of that stage reality. Mm -hmm. um, and that is true whether you're doing a, a workshop game or you're in the middle of uh, the Philadelphia story. Like the Philadelphia story has rules as a play. It's got rules and these people have to abide by those rules and play the game. So that's those sort of guardrails which are not imposed upon the student or forced upon the students, but the students, we essentially work with students to have them agree or players have them agree uh, with what we, uh, with what we're trying to, to problem solve. Because the problem solving aspect is something that is very cool about this technique mm. is you don't just say, this is our problem, fix it. You give them 
a game or an exercise that addresses the problem and you have them solve it without specific direction. Uh, in a workshop capacity, I think it works great. In a rehearsal capacity, I mean, maybe, you know, it time is tough. Uh, so, I mean, if you got, if you got time for it, great. Um, but I, I do, I do appreciate her idea that the problems of a game can be given, can be presented to a group so that when the group solves those problems, they're, they're, um, they're growing themselves, but also they are getting intuitive knowledge about how to address those problems in the future without thinking mm. that's the only way to fix it. It's this thing of like, well, as soon as you figure out a way to solve a problem, you can't just shut that down and be like, oh, that's the way to do it from now on. You have to keep in mind, you have to be open to learning again mm -hmm. or, or looking at the problem again and maybe trying something else um, to solve it. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. It does. It, it does make sense. And I, I think that's a, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. She, she, yeah. she seemed to know what she was talking about. <laughs> she does. I mean, she does know what she's talking about. I, I mean, yeah. I, I would, I would say, I was just thinking, um, you know, while you were saying that is like, I've never actually used her techniques in a rehearsal room. I don't think other than that was gonna be one of my questions. I'm so happy that you brought that up. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> well, I'm glad I could help. Um, just because I've, I've, I do more teaching, right? So my classrooms are where I have found this to be more effective because, I mean, I guess you could say that technically I've used them in a rehearsal room, but with children, right? So I've used game theory, because I guess we can call this theater game theory, sure. um, up in my classrooms to get to the uh, rehearsal space itself to get to the formal rehearsal of whatever play we're doing uh, to teach them the tools so that they can use them on the stage but in like a formal professional rehearsal space i i don't think i've ever i mean not not knowing we use these techniques well let me let me ask i want to expand on that one um so as a i want to look at this from an acting standpoint for a second um mm -hmm. as an actor um, and as as a student uh, at at certain points of your life, um, have you had these techniques in your classroom as a student or in your rehearsal as an actor that you that you can look back on and be like, oh, that's what that person was doing. So to be fair, I feel like it was such a long time ago. Um, I, I I'm right there with you. <laughs> <laughs> just because I feel like this past year has been a decade. Um, but it's in, in my, in my grad school, definitely these okay. techniques. I mean, my, my drama as education professor, uh, definitely used a lot of these same, I saw a lot of Viola Spolin's theories in her work. Okay. Um, she also did a lot of like Keith Johnstone and, and, uh, you I know, love Keith Johnstone. He's, he's the, another he's, one. He's great. I, I want, I want someone to pick that book eventually because I think it's great. So I, I mean, I haven't read his book yet, but I really mm -hmm. want to. Um, but the people that I worked for, uh, at NEYT, the, the Vermont theater, uh, they were big Keith Johnstone. And I was like, they're very similar, right? Viola yes. Spolin and Keith Johnstone are on a very similar wavelength. Yes. Um, I think one of the interesting things, and I was going to say this when we were talking about environment. Sorry, I'm going off on a separate tangent now. That's but, okay. 
Um, one of the interesting things was that I think that Viola Scolan puts a lot of emphasis on environment where Keith Johnstone does not, right? Like that's one of the main things that I think are different between the two is that she's like, no, 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 we're going to ask people to be vulnerable. We have to respect their space. Mm -hmm. And I think that Keith Johnstone's like, now we can just do it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think, I think that's without I, having read his book. I, I think that I, it's been a little while since I've read it. I think he spends a lot of time talking about the role of a teacher in that even more than Spolin. Well, he does talk about a leader, but he talks about, um, he talks about like lowering you. So one of the, one of the big lessons that I remember from that is the idea of getting rid of that approval slash disapproval of the teacher and essentially lowering the status of the teacher so that the students can feel freer to do their work. He literally mm -hmm. tells a story about, he walks into class and I do this, Sometimes he walks into a classroom and he sits on the floor in front of the students and he just sits mm -hmm. there and he starts talking to them and introducing himself. And I haven't really had this happen with me, but of course, you know, in a book, every scenario, any, every anecdote that they taught, that they tell has worked beautifully. They're not going to tell the an anecdotes. Um, right. But he says, I sit on the floor and I just talk to the students and eventually they all make themselves, them, they make their way down to the floor. He's like, they want, they don't like being higher than me. They want to be like lower or at my level. He said, so I get as low as I can so that they know, or they at least physically can see that we are equal in this, in this effort. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I really, I, it would be interesting because I, again, I haven't read it for a while, but I would be interested to read his book now under the premise of this podcast and see yeah. um, see how much is still is still super useful. Um, yeah. But I, I'm glad you brought that up. That's that's great because you know we have these theories, we have these techniques, and I've read books like you know you the big ones are Hagen and Linkletter um, and Stanislavski. Course, Stanislavski. <laughs> yeah. But there are these theories that I see out there, but I don't necessarily see everything or not everything but i don't necessarily see the ideas or the techniques of those books injected into classes or rehearsals um and maybe that's a good thing that way it's not just like some one approach to how it's done but um i uh, when i was reading the lewis book for example the robert lewis book method or madness i was like looking at the rehearsal process and i was like i have literally never seen like most of this ever done. Um, and when I'm reading through this book, I have, I have had theater or improv games. I've played some of the games in this book, not a ton, but so many times those games are, and not an afterthought, but just sort of like a little add in. They're like, okay, today we're going to do improv. Here you go. We're going to play these games. And it's, um, and, and in rehearsals, like when I was reading through the rehearsal stuff, I was like, I, I don't know any, like, I don't remember. I've done some viewpoints for one show that I was in. It was in a show, the director, this awesome director named Kenesha Foster, who I hope to have on this podcast one day. Kenesha, if you listen to this, please come on my podcast. Um, Kenesha, she, come on the podcast. It's fun. Yes. Uh, she, we were doing intimate apparel down in, North Carolina and she used some viewpoints techniques within the rehearsal process and I felt like she 
wasn't necessarily like a viewpoints disciple, but she used, it was not an afterthought. It was not, oh, everyone, we have a problem. This is how we're going to solve it. Viewpoints was obviously in her mind to permeate rehearsals throughout. And I've never really been in a rehearsal where it's been obvious that someone's like, for our problem solving or for you know, moving us forward, I'm going to be using some of Spolin's work. Like, this is how I'm going to move us forward. I've certainly never been in a rehearsal like that. Yeah, me neither. Yeah. I I definitely haven't either. Well, and, and part of it might be, and this is, this is another question I had, and I had to write it out because it was a little hard for me to figure out how to make it, um, you know, a small question. (laughs) So essentially I was wondering how challenging it is to use a technique like this. Imagine you're an actor in a show or in a classroom and how challenging it is it to use a technique like this. If the rest of the group isn't on board, Mm. it's not something that's necessarily discussed by the teacher. um, Because a lot of this technique really relies on the group and the leader to create the atmosphere that's needed. So, So, yeah, go ahead, please. So, um, I have, I have definitely been in class. So, so her, her method to theater, right. Using theater games as, as the teaching tool is like my biggest thing. That's just what I do as a teacher. That's how I approach theater. That's how it's fun. I have definitely had classrooms, um, where, and, and, you know, the demographic of this classroom was, uh, you know, at risk. And I'm using air quotes because I hate that term. Yeah, uh, not a great term. But inner city. Yeah, whatever, you know, however you want to describe it. Um, there, it's a, it's a low Maybe. funded school. Do you think disenfranchised would be? I think disenfranchised term? would be appropriate or, or a, a, um, an underfunded school. Underfunded, yeah, sure. Yeah, I don't, when you, another tangent, but when you use at risk or inner city or any of those things, like that is on the student and it's not the student's fault, that school is the way it is. And that is very frustrating to me. Yeah, and that's, and again, I mean, that goes, that's not a tangent for this podcast because part of the discussions that I want to have on this is how do we use more inclusive, universal language um, that, like you said, I mean, you said it, perfectly at risk puts the blame on the child um but a disenfranchised person that i mean a a 10 year old kid who's who's labeled at risk again i am also using air quotes makes it seem like the 10 year old did something wrong when the 10 year old has been disenfranchised right for for the purpose of this yeah if anyone if anyone listening wants to tweet or or message here with a better alternative i welcome the suggestions please 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 yeah i, I would say an underfunded school i think underfunded that's school. Great. what i feel because it's it's yeah or an underfunded city even yeah. um but uh so i was so i that that class in particular was very difficult to introduce i, I could never have done uh viola spolin's games in particular because there mm. isn't enough structure um, in the explanation of those games. So therefore my confidence level on teaching those games sometimes is very low and I needed to have confidence in that classroom because it was, they, they are in such a situation, 
um, that they, they're, they're going to test you. They're going to test you and test you and test you. And they're going to make sure they need to trust you. You need to create trust within that group. So, so I do think that like Viola Spolin's method uh, is, is not necessarily appropriate for the underfunded schools because you have to do such a high level of trust uh, or trust creating, trust building before you can even begin to explore that we are a group dynamic because you coming into their space, you are not in their group. You are not, you know, you and, and, and you are not yet, uh, and, and they're not going to give you respect or, or give you, not that I, you know what I mean? Like they're not going to give you anything for free in that group. And so you have to come in that like some of this ideal of coming in and being like, Hey, you know, like we're all in this together or whatever, like having this like very collaborative uh, mindset when you come in is effective to a point, but it's when you get into like, into these, these underfunded schools that you're, you have to work so hard to be even play the first game. Do you sure. know what I mean? Because you definitely don't have the environment. You don't have the space. You don't have the, the agreement of, of all the students because a lot of the times they may not even be agreeing with one another. Like they're, they can't come to a full agreement because they are not agreeing with each other. So if they're not agreeing with each other and they're not agreeing with you, like her, there's no way around all of her steps, right? Because she even gives like a step-by-step -step process yes. of what you can do. And she does give in the first edition, 95 tips <laughs> oh uh in the third edition it's 96 she amazing added she added yeah, one. she added one so, so she gives 96 tips on how to like approach everything but i do not think that she does she does a good job of addressing um at least in the first edition in, the, in 1963 addressing working with students who don't already intrinsically want to be there so yes i i agree i i do agree with that her um, a lot of, and that's how a lot of these books are. A lot of these books are in a sort of a perfect vacuum. Like the students mm -hmm. that you have, even the students who don't necessarily listen or, um, or are not participating or that kind of thing. They, that does not, that like that's as challenging as the students get in a lot of these books. They're just like, oh, like they want to be here, but they're just being difficult or maybe they're having a bad day. But mm -hmm. so many times as teachers or people who are on the road as actors, we run into groups who actively don't want to be there. Like they will actively try to get out of yeah. what is happening. And if I don't know what, Spolin's work can be used for to I mean maybe if do you think if there's a lot of focus in the beginning now imagine we have like time is not an option you know or time is sorry time is time has no meaning which kind of like how it is right now so imagine time has no meaning do you think a focus on the group agreement like trying to get to a group agreement um, uh, a group expression spending more time on that to build a group foundation to then be able to launch forward. Um, do you think that's something that teachers could focus on a little bit if their group is uh, more challenging uh, or maybe yeah. just does, you know, doesn't want to be there? Absolutely. Maybe. Okay. I mean, you just, Great. you just have to, you just have yeah. to. Yeah. And, and that's not to say like saying that these, these, 
classes that I was in um, where the kids, it was not to say we didn't reach some kind of agreement. We definitely, by the end of it, reached an agreement and we definitely were able to, and some, sometimes these, you know, little segments were, were faster than others and, you know, in the same school, within the same group, it, it, or you bring, I mean, so I sigh heavily because the, the biggest thing is, is I, it, it's funny because we go back to environment, right? So not only the space, but also the, the group dynamic and that environment. And mm-hmm. so if, if time was not a factor and, and we could meet with these kids, I could meet with these kids for however long they wanted to meet. And that was what happened. And other than, than maybe the time you know, of how long we met might change depending on how they're feeling that day. Uh, nothing else in their environment changed, meaning we didn't add more people, we didn't add more students, or we didn't take away students, or we didn't add in teachers. That's a big thing that happens in theater education right now, um, especially when you're just a teaching artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't add in new teachers or, uh, you know, whatever. Um, then, yeah, we could definitely reach a point where we would be able to attack the first game of Viola's Bowling and then continue on, right? We'd be able to do sure. the seeing the sport or whatever the, game, the first game is that she offers. Um, and, and we could definitely get there because every group, every community will eventually come together. Sometimes it just takes more time. Mm-hmm. And, and when you have an inconsistent environment, when students are absent or, um, you know, in and out or called to the principal's office or, you know, whatever might be happening in that moment, um, and then you have teachers who are coming and going, whether in my experience in the actual environment where teachers were coming and going and students were coming and going, or a, within the group dynamic, then you no longer have that environment. So it goes back to the importance, I mean, to her theory that that needs to be there. So again, though, she really specifies that like all these things need to be in place in order for any of this to work. And if those things aren't going to be in place, which they are not going to be in an underfunded school, her theories are not going to work. Very good point. I really super appreciate that one. That's that. I, that's a perspective I hadn't thought about before. Awesome, awesome. Um, now, I will, talking, I, oh, oh, go ahead, please, I was, please. I, I was going to say, I will say, if if you are in that, just because it feels like we are going to move off this topic, but if you are in that situation as an as an educator, specifically a theater educator, a theater maker who works with students or underserved communities. Uh, Augustus Ball is is the theater of the oppressed is someone that you would want to focus more on theoretically uh, because his work is more focusing on those groups and of those those communities. I think it is a falling that uh, a lot of our theater experts like Violet Boland doesn't say specifically, "Hey, this is a community this might not work for." Mm-hmm. Um, this, I, I own up that this doesn't hear. She does like kind of a backwards way of saying, well, if these things aren't in place and this isn't going to work. Right. Um, but I think being able to like point it out and, and, you know, be a little political about it and be able to say, not going to work for this community right now. If you don't have these things in place, this community is not going to, not going to benefit from this. My work, not that my work isn't for them, but that it's, it, it, it we need to shave off that elitism a little bit to be able to say, or that privilege right? That, that privilege 100% to be able to say, hey, my work is, is truly, truly, truly just for like what, what these things can offer. And, and again, she does say that, 
But I think that uh, as we move into the new world, right, I think you can say in our current environment, as we move into the new world, I think it's important for the theater makers of the future and of the, the present to, to, to give onus to their privilege and to say, this is the things that work and don't work. And, and that's, that's, that is very important because the recognition that not every, I mean, I, for, I feel like a lot of teachers just kind of like, oh yeah, of course, or, or theater practitioners, things like that. Like not every classroom is the same. Not every school is the same. Not every group is the same things. You are going to have a lot of different factors that are involved in a, uh, in a group dynamic, in a group agreement. And some of those factors for kids are literally they haven't eaten all day, you know, like there are there are things or the, the last time, the you know, they had lunch and that's the last time they're going to eat until tomorrow. So mm-hmm. there are these challenges. But again, that's why this podcast is here a little bit so that yeah. people so that names can be dropped like Augusta Bawal, Theater of the Oppressed. Um, I have. I have done a little bit of that work in uh, I did a little bit of that work in college, but um, his work is not always forefront for a lot of people. Um, Mm -hmm. So there will definitely be a podcast in the future about Bawal. So now we're, we're just racking up the the list. We got Johnstone, we got Bawal. (laughs) Um, There's going to be more. So, um, but that's, that's something to keep in mind for those of you listening. If you are, uh, working in an underfunded school, if you are working with a population of students who have um, obstacles in their lives that maybe are uh, a bigger challenge to get them to a point where you feel like Spolin would be beneficial for them, and you as a teacher, uh, there are other um, there are other places that we can look, um, and I will put a uh, a link to Bawal's book uh, in the, uh, uh, with, this, with this podcast. And that's something that is, is very important because these podcasts are not designed so that you don't have to read the books. You know, we don't all have time in our lives to read a bunch of books, you know, it's like, and, and get all the information. This is a, this is a flyover of, of uh, Spolin's work it's to give you an really? idea. If you're, I'm a slow reader, I take forever to read stuff. Um, and, and uh, like, in all honesty, I read most of this book for the podcast. Um, once I got to the rehearsal section, I was like, all right, I understand what this is. I sort of skipped through a little bit. Um, but the, in all honesty, if you can, if this is helpful for you to get an idea of what this book is about and to help be a guide for you in a you know, three episode or two or three episode podcast as we're recording. I don't know how many episodes it's going to be going to be at least two. Um, but in a two or three episode podcast, that's easier for you to digest um, to then move forward and get some references and sources. Awesome. That's the entire that's one of the main points of this. Um, so thank you for dropping Bawal's name, Becky. That's awesome. Uh, so you have you're very familiar with Spolin. Are there particular games that you like almost always use? You're like, this is my go-to game. Do you have do you have ones that really stick out for you? 
So this is going to kind of discredit like my entire <laughs> being on your podcast, but I actually don't specifically play any of her games in my classroom. I use a lot of oh, her techniques, sure. um, but I don't, I, I did try uh, mm -hmm. as a young teaching artist to play a couple of her games. I tried to play um, watching this, watching a sport with yeah. uh, a group of like nine and 10 year olds. Which I will admit that that game is kind of that game's kind of weird. I don't totally understand that game. Uh, <laughs> so I interpreted it as as putting it's it's kind of a Stanislavski thing. It's like very similar to that in the sense that uh, we put kids on the stage, right, and and then they have to face us as if they're looking at a television and they're watching. Um, some kind of sporting event, whatever their favorite sporting event is. And I happened to be in a private school when I was teaching this, not the, not the one I was a, an official teacher in, but a teaching artist at a private school um, with, it was a very sports heavy private school. So I met the kids where they were at because a lot of them were sports kids. And I was like, great. Uh, I want to, to, we're going to put you in front of this. And I tried to add a little bit more of a fun interpretation of it to be like, and we'll try to guess, which sport you're watching. That'll oh, be cool. fun. Cool, cool, cool. Right? Sounds fun in theory. Right. Boring. Ah. So boring. Ah. It was so boring. And I really tried to side coach them to be like, what's really watch the ball? Really, you know what I mean? Uh, or, or, you know, watch the gymnast. But I don't know what sport they're actually watching because they're not telling me because we've now made it a guessing game. So my side coaching can't be as precise as it needs to be. Sure. And all of them looked the same because yeah. I couldn't side coach them on what they needed to do. So it's not that I gave up on Viola Spolin after that or her games. It was that I, I had in my arsenal um, already an encyclopedia of theater games that was created when I was in grad school. And then also another one that's been created since I've worked at a couple other theaters uh, that have, are effective and teach the same principles, I think, um, that Viola Spolin is trying to teach in her games, it's just under a different name. So one of the things about theater games is that we always, you probably know all the theater games that there are to know, but they're under a different name, right? Sure. So like I might know uh, one to be called Zoom and you know it as Pass the Energy, right? It's like, it could very well be a different, same concept of a different name. And I, so I, I think, I've heard Foursquare and then Change. Like that's like the same game. Great. Yes. Yes. I love that game, by the way. That's, yeah, that's so much it's fun. a good one. Um, but it's, it's, so I, I may be t doing some of her games. I honestly, because I, I have to compartmentalize my lesson planning that I don't always look at her book. Uh, clearly sure. I haven't had it in my process possession for two years. Because uh, sure. I, <laughs> whatever. Um, so I, I might be using some of her games but it's probably under a different name. But I use well, the theory behind what she's doing. Right, and I think that's the more important part um, in a sense because she does talk about being able to adapt, create your own games, use what you have as long as the technique is there. I, I don't think there's anything wrong if someone's, you know, for anyone who's listening, if you have a game that you've been using and you're like, oh, that's not in Spolin's book, don't worry is i don't think the game itself is the most important it's important for her um but the the actual theory and atmosphere and the techniques of teaching are 
as long as it's communicated to the students and they are communicating to you and you're getting somewhere, I don't think that's that's necessarily a problem. If anything, you know, I respect people who can come up with their own games. That's that is that's hard work. That's that takes some uh, that takes some confidence. Let me say that. <laughs> it does it really does, and it takes a lot of imagination. Yeah, uh, which is so cool. I've I've watched other teaching artists do it in front of me, and I'm like, okay, cool, 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 cool. I yeah. see you. I see it's, you. It's really impressive, and. Um, and, and, and again, this book itself has a ton of games in it. Like it's some, it's some, it's like 200 games or some crazy number. It, it really is. Yeah. So if you are somebody who doesn't have an arsenal of games from college or theaters you've worked with or something like that, this book, I would recommend just as a start. And if you come across a game that you're like, I don't understand this skip it that's what i say just skip it <laughs> yeah skip it also i will say um like i said there are a lot of there are a few i shouldn't say a lot of there are a few uh youtube videos of her talking about her theory and also um or her method i don't know what term she would like to be called um and also uh like watching some other actors play the games but they are adult actors so it is also kind of hard to like Decide, like for kids, if you're just teaching kids um, or you're in, gonna, about to teach kids or something, um, you might have to think really deeply about child psychology before you, you necessarily go through these, um, these games. And I do remember opening her book uh, for sure during, um, and because and, I also had to teach like a little, little, littles class like preschool toddlers class or whatever. And she doesn't go that, that young in her mm. classroom, but I was able to take some of like the six through eight year olds to be like, hmm, maybe we can, you know, adapt this a little bit more for a toddler for not toddler, but like, well, toddler, they were like five. That's a toddler still, right? I, don't know. I think so. I don't know. Neither of us have a baby. So <laughs> yeah, we don't have children. That's what, what is child? Um, and so I have had to like kind of downplay her stuff. But I, I think it also, and by downplay, I mean, I mean ad adapt the game to a younger age. Um, but uh, yeah, I think, I think it also like, I, yeah, I think the games that I do play or the games that I, I am comfortable with teaching and, and directing or, or um, you know, side coaching, as she would say, um, are probably somewhere within her, her encyclopedia. Sure. Or... And again, at the very least, I don't think she would have a problem with people adapting what they need from this book. She is not, again, she is not interested in a dogmatic approach. She's like, take take this, you know, if you need to adjust this game for your environment, then do it. You know, whatever you, whatever you can take from this book is going to be important. Right, right, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. So I, I have always been interested, though, of like, actually having a, a class that I could just do all of her work and see if it would like get the result that she wa is saying it'll get, yeah. you know, like that yeah. would be so interesting to do. Um, but I need a university to pay me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or you just need to find a group of people who would be like willing to follow you to the ends That's of the true. earth. And I mean, if you have a company, you know, if you had if you had your own company 
and we're like, okay, this is our Spolin workshop. We are going to be doing Spolin work for the next three months. Then maybe that, you know, give me a thousand dollars each. Then maybe that's the, that's the, uh, the route you got to go. Hey, that's an idea. <laughs> Hey, all right. <laughs> Whatever inspires. <laughs> Not bad. Maybe that's what I'll do. Maybe that's what I'll do. It's so funny, though, because it, I love that you're doing this podcast because I have read a, a few books now, right, from all these, these theater people. And mm. I definitely have cherry-picked, you know, what I, I like to use in my everyday life. And side note, is cherry picked okay to say? I just like it just hit me. That's okay, I, right? I'm pretty sure. That's still I okay. mean, I, when I was a kid, cherry picking meant something different because I was on the soccer team and cherry picking meant like picking your butt. Oh. Um, yeah, like cuz I was on like a little soccer team. I was never me. It was never me. Um, but Lies. <laughs> like we we would be in like practice or even sometimes during a game. And the coach would be, I mean, again, we were like eight. And the coach would be like, stop cherry picking out there. <laughs> That's so bad. That's it's, awful. And now that I think about it, it is pretty gross to say to like a seven and eight year old. Um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, I am aware of the other term, but I don't think, I don't think there's anything wrong with the other term. No. Yeah. Okay. I just, I was like kidding me. I've been doing a lot of, you know, obviously as we all have, I've been as doing a lot of reading have. of like what's appropriate uh, right. just because things have been in our lexicon that like, we just haven't researched to know if that's okay to say. And, and yeah. not like, and okay as in the sense of like, is it harmful to other communities? Right. I mean, you can say whatever the f you want, but if it's that's hurtful fair. to yeah. other people, maybe don't. <laughs> maybe don't say it. Maybe don't, you don't have to say it. Right. So anyway, I have, I have definitely, uh, you know, sifted out the pieces of other people's work that I, that, that I have has resonated with me and I have used it. So like Sandy Meisner and Bratowski and Stanislavski and all of the, and Uta Hagen, like they're all listed on my resume. Am I an expert in them? No. No. <laughs> like, not at all. Who is really? Like who is an expert other than those people? Um, but I've definitely done some work with those things. Um, sure. And they all are very, I actually, in my, my senior level uh, high school theater class, I did teach a little bit of the methods. And I was like, here's a list of all the people who had these methods. Here are all the things that like, here's a small synopsis of what these things are. I'm not assigning them to you because giving homework in a theater class seems like a waste of time to me. Right. But <laughs> here are the, <laughs> you, if you're interested, you can read more of this stuff. Well, and the other the other thing is, I mean, this like who's an expert and this, that and the other thing, these theories change. I mean, um, uh, 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 Spolin, I almost said Hagen. There's a lot of names running through my head right now. But Spolin says that, you know, she's like techniques change. They have right. to change. We can't do them the same way. We won't be able to do these techniques the same way in 100 years. Things are going to be different. Um, but. I also, for any actors out there or new actors, especially, if you're worried that you don't know the ins and outs of Sandy Meisner or uh, David Mamet, then um, don't worry because you literally, I have, Becky and I have been in tons of shows between us, never really in the same show yet. No, not yet. I don't count the murder mystery company. That doesn't count. Um, does not, not acting. Does that was not, not acting. That no. was not acting. Um, but that was, uh, but 
you'll never, ever have a director in the middle of a scene or who gives you a note that says, all right, I want you to do that using Meisner's technique now. Do that. Do that like Meisner would do it. Or do it like Mamet would do it. Yeah. Yeah. Literally never happens. So never happens. don't worry if you've been listening and you're like, oh, my God, I need to know all this stuff. You, you, I mean, this is just here to help you. Um, I, I'm going to have a guest on who doesn't use books, who's just like, hey, I started reading them and it made me think too much, so I don't use them. And that's, that's fine. You know, you got to do what you got to do. Everyone has a system, whether it's conscious or unconscious. But you'll have your system. Uh, as you were just saying, Becky, you have come up with your system, cherry-picking a lot of different things, and, and which in a sense makes it Becky Fleckner's system, which is fine um, because we, we all have one. Even people who say, oh, I don't have a system. They have a system. They just might not be aware of it. They might not be able to articulate it, but I mean, it's got to work for them. And as long as it's not hurting anybody, it's fine. Every podcast, I think I might make a point of saying that Jared Leto's kind of a piece of shit for being such an asshole about the way that he is a quote unquote method actor, which is not the way method is. He's an asshole. Um, I mean, he's done great work. He's done great artistic work, but he is kind of a dick when it comes to the way that he treats his uh, his group. So that guy <laughs> exactly that guy well it goes back to this whole thing that like then it's this elitist like unattainable uh you know uh work that isn't that no one can achieve because you're not jared leto or you're not uh you know or you're not dennis hoffman or or, or you know or dennis hoffman dustin hoffman i actually it's weird that you said him because i saw him on tv a couple of weeks ago and i couldn't think of his name it oh was God gone i thought i was I, I thought i thought i thought i was losing my mind i was like i was just staring at the screen like what is his name so, <laughs> <Tootsie. laughs> hook, hook outbreak i know all the movies he's in i just can't think of his name what's his name uh well but i mean and those are those are i only use him as well because he's an actor who's been who's been dubbed as like a method actor right or they like whatever and that's just not it's you don't you're i think you're right and that's the beauty of of what we're even doing here is talking about this is like we we're talking about this because it's a theory not because right. it's not because it's it's a live fat like hard fast like you have to do it this way this is the only way it's going to work right. it's it's meant to be it, she even says it right it's meant to change it's meant to adapt it's meant to to adjust to the time that it is because theater in and of itself is supposed to be a reflection of the time that you're in it's it's holding a mirror it's art it's yeah. holding up a mirror to humanity and so these actors who like jared leto just being like i'm a method actor and like i'm just like whatever yeah like off, how does man. how does sending how does sending dead rats to your ensemble in a movie make you a better actor? It doesn't. It doesn't make you a better actor. It makes you a dick. So don't ever do that. That's harmful. Um, if, you know, if, if he wanted to be off in the corner pretending he was the Joker the entire time and the director was going to handle that, okay, do what you got to do, man. But don't ever hurt or make other people uncomfortable with your acting um, because that's I didn't like, know he did that. Yeah, or it was either, I think it was Dead Rats, there was like a 
there was like a pig head at some point, I think. He was, it was, a, ah. oh, used, used condoms. That was it. It was like, ah. used, or they seemed used. They better not have been used because that's fucking gross. But he, it was like dead rats, used condoms. He like sent, like Will fucking Smith, Margot Robbie, these people got like a dead rat sent to them and then had to act with this person. That's insane to me. Um, I, I And I get like, you know, you hear a lot about um, uh, uh, oh, what's this bucket? The the my left foot. Um, uh, Daniel Day Lewis. Sorry, mm, mm-hmm. you hear a lot about Daniel Day Lewis. Um, I I know that dude's like super private about a lot of stuff, but you have I have heard like you know he's one of these method guys who just like just has to be in the role, and. The thing is, I think Daniel Day Lewis is a better actor than Jared Leto. But, um, but the other thing is, like, you're gonna get sued for libel. I don't even care. <laughs> so, good, good, good. good. Then, I, then I'll, then I'll, um, you know, I'll, then I'll, that'll get me tweets. But yeah, that's fair. <laughs> but I, um, but with with Daniel Day Lewis, like, I can understand, and I've done this myself in certain capacities, like with a dialect or an accent or a physicality, where. Like, say, Daniel Day-Lewis was playing Lincoln, and he's like, you know what? It's kind of difficult for me to just, like, jump in and out of Lincoln's speech and his voice, so I'm just going to talk like Lincoln this whole time. Um, okay, great. Um, do, do, do we have to call you Mr. President? Yeah, I would prefer it. Okay, that's weird, but that doesn't, like, that's weird for me, but I'm not, it's not like, again, it's not like hurting me. Anyway... Getting off on a tangent, what I'm, I, I, I think what our point is, I'm, I might cut some of this. I think what our point is. Don't cut any of it. Keep it on. <laughs> but I think what the point is, is do not fear if you feel like you don't have a system or a method in place. If you feel like you yeah. don't have a system or a method in place, great. That's a great place to be. And that will leave you open to learning uh, more about what's out there, what works for you, what doesn't, what you think is genius and what you think is bullshit and whether or not you even if you're on that extreme end of the spectrum recognize that something that you think sucks might work beautifully for somebody else um and you know just be okay with that it's as long as the as long as the process is a, a a positive uh you know if it creates a positive group for group agreement or group expression, as um, uh, uh, Spolin might say, then great, whatever works. Yeah, well, I think that's super important, right? It's like, like we can, this is, I mean, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is to guide people to be like, hey, here's a book that talks about all these theories. If this is something you've been like, hey, I'd like someone, you know, to, to give that to me in a written word form, great, read this book. If again, like you said, if you, if you're somebody who doesn't already have an arsenal of of theater games in your back pocket, um, then like, great, you can pick this up and you can adapt these games to work for you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Rooms and Reckonings, an acting podcast. Keep on the lookout next week for the final episode of Improvisation for the Theater featuring Becky Fleckner. Thanks again for joining the conversation. And we'll see you next time on Rooms and Reckonings, an acting podcast.